Amen. Please be seated and turn in your Bibles to the book of Joshua as we continue our, our trek through uh, this book. I pray that um, as we've studied through uh, Corinthians, we've studied through Joshua and 1 John and, and Peter and James on, on Wednesday night, that the Lord has worked in your heart and that no matter what book we've, you've been studying this week or um, this month, or that, that the Lord is doing a mighty work in your life. And as you open the word of God, that you open not just for head knowledge, but you open with the intent to see Jesus and to obey him. I also am excited that um, you guys got an extra hour of sleep. Hopefully, unless you have young kids, then it was just normal for you. But uh, for those of you who got an extra hour of sleep, I, I pray that it, that it has invigorated you to, to listen to another lengthy sermon. Um, see, we live in a culture that is constantly calling us to follow our hearts. As long as our heart's desire isn't hurting anyone, it is free to pursue what it desires. See, this is the mantra of our culture. It is the plot of nearly every movie coming out of Hollywood. Consider the overly recycled Hollywood narrative where a father who desires to lead his children in discipline with objective truth is considered the antagonist, while the rebellious child who wishes to defy his father's authority and follow his heart is considered the protagonist. Ultimately, the child is justified in his pursuit of his heart's ambitions no matter what the cost while the father ultimately repents and apologizes for having any standards of truth, goodness, and discipline for his child. Hollywood makes movies like these because such a narrative describes the longing of the hearts of the majority of its viewers. They aren't necessarily pushing an agenda. They are offering a liturgy of worship that our culture already partakes of daily. Tell someone to be suspicious of their heart and their motives, and you will quickly lose friends in real life and followers on social media. Yet, the Bible tells us that our hearts are wicked, and our hearts are deceitful. They are not to be trusted. They are prone to wander. They are prone to sin. So, what should we know about the sinfulness of our hearts, and what are we to do about it? We will discuss that this morning. My main point is this. A sinful heart yearns for its own glory, while a righteous heart repents to the glory of God. I'll say that again. A sinful heart yearns for its own glory, while a righteous heart repents to the glory of God alone. So hopefully you've made your way, friends, to to Joshua chapter 7. Please follow along as I read the chapter in its totality. But the people of Israel broke faith and regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, and the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things. And the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near beth east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all, uh, do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about 36 of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent. And the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark, of the Lord until the evening, he and the elders of Israel. And they put dust on their heads. 
And Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to give us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. Get up! Consecrate the people and say, Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. There are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought by near by your tribes. And the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans. And the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households. And the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man. And he who is taken with the devoted things uh, shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord. And because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe. And the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah. And the clan of the Zeharites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zerahites man by man. And Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man. And Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord, God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord, God of Israel, and this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar and 200 shekels of silver, a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels, then I coveted. I coveted them and took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons, and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They buried them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor. What a depressing sight of a man refused to repent of his sin. Point one, sinful hearts always covet God's glory for ourselves. Sinful hearts always covet God's glory for ourselves. You might recall from my sermon last week that the Lord put his holiness and justice on display as he rained down his wrath on the people of Jericho. Because of many generations of perverse rebellion against God, 
the Lord brought judgment to the people of Jericho. While they seemingly sat safe between the walls of their mighty fortified city, the Lord simply willed that their walls fall down and they fell. And then in Jericho, all hell broke loose. Chapter 6, verse 17 says that the city was completely devoted to destruction. You see, the, the Lord used the Israelites to kill every man, every woman, every boy, every girl, every animal within the city. The burnt city, they burnt to the ground. And even Joshua, he, you might recall from last week, that he put a curse on anyone who would ever come and try to rebuild the city. You see, it gives us a picture of God's wrath. It gives us a picture of total destruction. Now, one aspect of the text that I didn't really have time to explain last week that will be very relevant for our study this morning is, is found in chapter 6, verses 18 through 19. The Lord wasn't just calling the Israelites to bring destruction to the people, and to the actual physical city of Jericho. He was calling for the complete judgment of their things as well. See, they were such a perverse people that everything except silver, gold, bronze, and iron were devoted to complete destruction. Everything. Presumably, the only reason that these precious metals were able to be kept is because they would have been purified by fire, similar to what we see in, in Numbers 31. You know, you want to purify even precious gold to this day? What do you do? Put it with fire. You see, these precious metals wouldn't burn. Instead, the fire, it purifies them. The Israelites would, would bring judgment upon the people, burn the city, and after the city had been burnt down, they would gather the precious metals from the ashes and then place them into the treasury of the Lord. The Israelites were not to keep the metals. They were not to sell the metals. They were not to rely on them for some future day that they'd be poor. They were to take these precious metals that had been purified and devote them purely to the Lord. And see, God was rather explicit in his instructions. In fact, a failure to abide by God's commandments would result in making the camp of Israel a thing for destruction. In other words... It would make Israel a thing like the city of Jericho, a thing for destruction, a thing of God's wrath, a thing of God's judgment. And according to chapter 6, verse 18, it would bring trouble upon Israel. This is the context for our text as we arrive in Joshua chapter 7, verse 1. There we, there we read in, in verse 1, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things for Achan, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. You see, this man, Achan, that we're introduced to here in the text, he did not heed the warning of the Lord. He didn't. Rather than explicitly obeying what the Lord commanded, he willfully and sinfully rebelled against the Lord. In fact, this, this word for broke faith that you see in, in, in chapter, in, in verse 1, in Hebrew, it is a term that, that is most often used as, as the term to describe a wife's adultery against her husband. They committed adultery. Said plainly, Achan broke the terms of the covenant between God and his people. That's what he did. Achan took what was meant to be devoted to the Lord, and he put it in his own tent. He took what was meant to be put into God's tent, the tabernacle, and put it into his own tent. He robbed from God. You see, if you go all the way down to verse 21, it says something important. It tells us really what Achan was guilty of as he confesses. Verse 21 reveals that Achan, at its most foundational level, he was guilty of the sin of coveting. He wanted something that wasn't his. He didn't just covet anyone's possessions, possessions though. He coveted what belonged to God. What's interesting, friends, is 
of all the Ten Commandments, the command to not covet might be the command that many Christians treat with the least amount of severity. It is a sneaky, deceitful, and often excused sin. See, covetous, covetous, covetousness is, is deceitful because it, perhaps more than any of the other Ten Commandments, is a pure, pure heart posture. That's not to say that the rest of the Ten Commandments didn't involve the heart. Jesus clearly said, if you've lusted after a woman in your heart, you've committed adultery. If you've hated your brother in your heart, you're guilty of, of murder. However, covetousness doesn't have a, a necessary outward expression of coveting. Instead, covetousness can lead to a whole host of external sins, such as adultery, murder, stealing, greed, etc. Yet, we ignorantly think that the covetous heart can lie hidden before others long before it expresses itself in any public way. We ignorantly think that. Therefore, we can deceive ourselves into thinking that just because we've supposedly hidden our covetousness from man, that we're okay. See, we would be appalled if our friend knew that we coveted his wife. Yet, we're okay if God knows that we covet our friend's wife. We would be humiliated if our coworker knew that we coveted his promotion. Yet, we're completely comfortable if God knows that we covet our coworker. We would never confess to actually coveting the social media influencer's way of life, yet we are, are okay with our God seeing our covetous hearts as we covet complete strangers across the globe. We might, ne we might never verbalize how we covet another, another couple's marriage, another mom's strengths, another family's children, another Christian's influence, another Christian's giftings, another brother's income, another business's success, a classmate's intelligence, a friend's popularity, another church's fruitfulness, or another friend's parents. However, it's tragic how well we can sleep at night at times, simply knowing that only God can see our covetous hearts. We must understand how serious covetousness is to God. We might consider Romans 1, verses 28 and 29. See, in Romans 1, Paul speaks of those that suppress the truth of God. They're, they're described as, as fools. As fools. Therefore, in light of them suppressing the truth and in unrighteousness, God gives them over to their sin. In fact, Romans 1.28 says that God ultimately gives them over to what they desire. A debased mind. What is the result in Romans 1 verse 29? They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. Friends, when we covet... Hear me, we are acting in a way that doesn't demonstrate saving faith and trusting in the Lord. That's how we're acting. Instead, we are acting as those that God has given over to their sin and a debased mind. When we covet, we act as those who have completely suppressed the truth of God and unrighteousness. That's how we act. You might consider 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11 through that says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit 
of our God. Notice what Paul says here. Paul says, such were some of you. Such were some of you. Such people were washed by the blood of Jesus, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, justified in the name of the Son and the Spirit of God. In other words, they were declared righteous before God and they were changed by the Spirit. Their lives looked different. See, according to Paul, when we covet, we are identifying as those who are not washed by the blood of Jesus and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. That's how we're acting. We are not identifying as those who have been justified, but as those who are still dead in their sin. And perhaps most intimidating, we are acting, acting as those who Paul says, hear me, will not inherit the kingdom of God. I also think it's helpful to see what Paul says to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 5, 3 through 6. He writes this, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named among you as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetousness or, 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 or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Hear me again, Christians. When we covet, we are identifying as those that are impure and improper. We are acting as those who have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. We are acting as children of wrath. Now, it might seem like such a passing comment, but Ephesians 5.5 really gets at the heart of why covetousness is so wretched. Because, hear me, because covetousness is idolatry. Covetousness, it is idolatry. To covet is to be guilty of idolatry. It is worshiping something else instead of God. It is robbing God of the glory that is due to him alone. In fact, when we covet, we can often foolishly deceive ourselves into thinking that we are just coveting our neighbor. That's what we think. When in fact, the most egregious thing about covetousness is that every time we covet, we are actually coveting against the Lord. We are coveting the Lord's wisdom and thinking that we actually know what is best for our lives rather than Him. We are coveting the Lord's glory as we seek our own comfort and fame in this life. We are coveting the Lord's power as we seek to sovereignly align our lives in a way that would gratify the flesh. When we covet, we are guilty of the worship of self. We are idolaters, worshiping ourselves rather than God. In fact, deep at the heart of every sin is a heart that covets the glory of self rather than the glory of God alone. Isn't that what Satan did in the garden? See, Satan tempted Adam and Eve in the garden by twisting the word and the character of God in Genesis 3-5 when he said, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Let me translate Satan's words there. God is holding back from you, Eve. God doesn't know what is best for you, Eve. Eve... You deserve to be like God in every respect. You see, Satan tempted Adam and Eve to covet God's glory. That is the essence of sin. Coveting, friends, hear me. It is grotesque before the Lord. 
And we can see why it is so despicable to God. And perhaps that is why we can see that he deals with it so swiftly in the rest of chapter 7. Which leads us to point two. Sinful hearts disregard God's character and God's provision. Sinful hearts disregard God's character and God's provision. See, Joshua 7.1 says that the anger of the Lord burned against the whole nation of Israel because of Achan's sin. He holds the whole nation accountable. In fact, notice how God responds in, in verses 2 through 5. After God gave them a swift and decisive victory over the mighty city of Jericho, it was now time for the Israelites to continue conquering city by city, and and next would be the, the city of Ai. Therefore, Joshua, like he did with Jericho, sent some spies to check out the city, and and the spies, just like Jericho, came back with a favorable report. They told Joshua that the whole Israeli army didn't need to go attack Ai because they were a much smaller city, approximately between 10 and 12,000 people estimated. Therefore, Joshua only sent 3,000 men to go overtake the city. However, unlike their previous easy battle in Jericho, where they did not lose Israelites, the citizens of Ai drove the Israelite army away from their city and killed 36 Israelites. No longer did the Israelites' hearts burn within them. Instead, notice verse 5. It says that the hearts of the people melted and became as water. They were despondent. Does that sound familiar from our book of Joshua so far? Therefore, Joshua and the elders in Israel, they went into mourning. We see in verse 6 that, that, they, that they tore their clothes and they, and they fell on their faces before God. Then, then in verse 8, we see Joshua crying out to God. He, he wondered why God allowed them to be defeated by the people of Ai. While he was so sure of God's plans in the previous chapters, we can see that his, his faith begins to dip a little bit here in chapter 7. He confesses to the Lord that they would have gladly stayed on the other side of the Jordan and they, if they could have just simply lived peacefully there. In other words, they were content with not receiving all that God had promised. Not only that, but verse 9 indicates that Joshua thought the people of the land would ultimately obliterate the people of Israel because it might have appeared to them that God had abandoned the people of Israel all together. In other words, Joshua and the elders at that point feared for their own survival. Then, in typical Joshua-like fashion, Joshua asks a profound question in in verse 9. He says, And what will you do for your great name? See, righteous Joshua wasn't just concerned for his own survival. He was concerned for the glory of God. He pleaded with God. God, God, how how are you going to get glory in such a scenario? How will you bring glory to yourself when your people look weak to even the smallest city such as Ai? See, what Joshua needed to understand is that God wasn't just looking to create a nation of people that was a military powerhouse. That wasn't God's purpose for the people of Israel, at least not his primary purpose. He wasn't looking to build a nation who simply had great land and great prosperity. He was primarily looking to build a nation that was distinct because of its holiness. That was God's desire for his people. He was seeking to bring glory to himself by building a people who reflected his glory and who reflected his character. That is what God was doing. Therefore, in in verse 10, God doesn't hold back from Joshua. He tells Joshua, he says, get up. He asks, why are you on your face? Why are you just laying there? And verse 11 says, Israel has sinned. Your nation has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant. Then God explains exactly what Israel did. They took some of the devoted things that were devoted to the Lord. They stole from the Lord. They lied to the Lord. 
And they put these goods among their own possessions. The Lord lays it out clearly. Then the, then the Lord outlines the consequences for the nation. God said that the Israelites could not stand before their enemies. If they chose to go into battle, they would lose. In fact, like the people of Jericho, they have now become devoted to destruction. Essentially, God says this, If you want to act like the people of the world, I will treat you like the people of the world. The Lord tells the Israelites. You see, when I was, when I was much younger, I used to enjoy a good horror movie. Anyone like horror movies? I don't like them anymore. I know some of you do. I'm not judging. I'm just saying I don't like them. But it seemed like in every horror movie that I used to watch, there was a scene where the villain was chasing after one of the main characters, and that character just does something foolish. Something stupid. They go to the top floor of a house and hide in an attic, or they, or they somehow lock themselves in a room or, or, or a hallway where there's only one way in and, and, and one way out. And, and as the viewer, you're sitting there thinking, No! What are you doing? You can't possibly be that dumb. People aren't that dumb in real life. Of course, the inevitable happens. And the ignorant character dies because of their foolish choice. And as we look at Aiken's decision, I feel like I'm looking at a horror movie right here. And Aiken is that foolish character. Can we consider just for one moment how foolish Aiken acted here? The text tells us that, that Aiken had a family. Aiken had a wife. Aiken had children. Aiken owned property. Meaning, Aiken has likely been around long enough to see God do some pretty terrifying things in the midst of Israel. For one, he probably witnessed Moses die off and not be able to enter into the promised land because of his sin. He likely saw those Israelites who worship Baal of Peor in Numbers 25 be hung in front of the nation because of their idolatry. He likely saw the Lord send fiery serpents to kill the grumbling Israelites at Mount Hor. Not only that, but he saw the Lord part the Jordan River so that the Israelites could cross into the promised land. He literally stood on dry ground as he crossed, and he could look to his right to see the river piled up for miles and miles and miles as God brought himself glory. He witnessed the walls of Jericho simply fall down because God willed it. He witnessed what happened to pagan people who didn't fear the Lord but raged against the Lord. They were slaughtered, and not a single man, woman, boy, girl, or animal was left. Not a single homestead. The whole city was burned, their stuff burned, and this is what happened to people who rejected God, and Achan saw it with his own eyes. Yet, he also saw God's faithfulness to his people. God was faithful to provide. He was faithful to be with his people. He was faithful to lead his people. He was faithful to bless his people. All they had needed, his hand had provided. His faithfulness was indeed great. In fact, in the conquest of Jericho, God was faithful to give his people victory. He was faithful to promise to give the Israelites the city, and he did. Not only that, but God was promising his people an abundant and a prosperous land. This is what he promised the Israelites. They would not want for anything if they followed the Lord. You see, God had revealed himself to Achan. God revealed his law. He revealed his holiness. He revealed his justice. He revealed his faithfulness. He revealed his mercy. And as Achan stood there and literally participated in God's judgment of Jericho, he decided to disobey the Lord and to take what belonged to God. You see, God had given his people certain victory. But Achan didn't trust God. 
He rested in his own foolish wisdom. And friends, that is called a fool. A fool. Yet, before we're too hard on Achan, we better take stock of our own lives, friends. I would argue that it is far more grotesque when Christians like you and me choose a life of sin and rebellion than what Achan did. Achan was ignorant of Christ's life, death, burial, and resurrection. We are not. Achan did not have the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit living inside of him. We do. Achan was not given certain victory over the power of sin through Jesus Christ. We have. We have. It's in Romans 6, 2 through 4, in light of such truths, Paul asked the Christians in Rome a very important question. He said, how can we who died to sin still live in it? You ask yourself that question? How can we who died to sin still live in it? He goes on to say, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, it is inconceivable and completely unnecessary for Christians to walk in sin. Why? Because through the cross, Christ has given us victory over the power of sin. When Christ was on that cross, our old selves, your Christian, was on the cross with Christ. When Christ died, our old selves died with Christ. That is what it means when, when we were baptized into his death. Our old selves that were slaves to sin and could do nothing but dishonor the Lord, dead. However, as Christ rose, we rose with him so that we could walk in newness of life. This, friends, this is what salvation is. This is what happens when we come to Christ. We have complete and total victory over the power of sin. Period. Yet, in this life, we still sin. We still sin. I mean, isn't that what we read about in 1 John 1? Doug's taught on this many times. The Apostle John told Christians, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. He also said, if we say we have not sinned, we make Jesus a liar and his word is not in us. Friends, just because we have been saved by Christ doesn't mean that we still don't battle the flesh. In fact, in this life, we will never be free from the presence of sin. Not just in this world, but in our own lives. The Bible tells us that. In fact, we have complete victory over the power of sin in this life. But we still sin. The question is, why? Why? Why do we sin? Why? Well, the only reason Christian sins is because he wants to. Because he chooses to. A Christian doesn't sin because he's a victim to addiction. A Christian doesn't sin because God just made him that way. A Christian doesn't sin because the devil made him do it. A Christian doesn't sin because of his upbringing. A Christian doesn't sin because of his theological ignorance. A Christian doesn't sin because of the culture. A Christian doesn't sin because of various temptations. 
A Christian doesn't sin because of trials. A Christian doesn't sin because of his wife and children. No, a Christian sins for one reason and one reason only. Because he makes the choice to live in the flesh. Period. He chooses to live like the world. He chooses to live like the old corpse. He chooses to identify as those who will experience the eternal wrath of God. This is what we do when we sin, Christians. We willingly reject God and reject his provision in Jesus. That is what we do. That is the choice that we make. That's why Paul says in Colossians 3, 5 through 10, he says this. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death, why? Because through Christ we can. Because through Christ we can, but there's people in the church that weren't. So he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and here it is again, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Paul says what he told the church at Ephesus. In these uh, these two you once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them away. Not you should put them away. Not you might put them away. Not that you can put them away. But you must put them away. It's not optional. Put them away. Put anger away and wrath and malice and slander and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. See, Paul also says this in Romans 8.13. He says, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit, if by the Spirit, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Oh, Brian, you're preaching works righteousness. Brian, you're making me guilty because I haven't done that. Friends, I'm preaching the Bible. It's consistent. God is consistent in the Old Testament. God is consistent in the New Testament for his people. He desires holiness. See, John Owen, he wrote a whole book on one verse, Romans 8, 13. And here's the point that he translates this whole verse. He says, be killing sin or sin be killing you. Amen. See, Christians, we must put to death what is earthly in us. We must put to death the deeds of the body. If we don't, hear me, we will die. These commands that Paul's writing to in almost every single epistle, these imperatives, are written to Christians. Not to unbelievers, but to Christians. And the thing is, hear me, Christians will put to, de- put to death the deeds of the flesh. That's what Christians do. They will repent by faith. They will sin but they will confess their sin to Christ and they will experience his forgiveness. See, should you choose to reject such clear warnings and go on in rebellious, unrepentant sin, there's a very good chance you're not a Christian at all and stand to experience the wrath of God at this moment. You see, such realities should bring a chill down our spine. Christians, look at me. We must take these warnings very, very seriously. God doesn't play. How can we go on sinning? How? Why would we as Christians desire to identify as objects of God's wrath? Why? See, Through Christ, all of these things are unnecessary. If we fail to heed his warnings, we are far more guilty than Achan. We must not forget God and his provision in Christ. Point three. Sinful hearts desire darkness. Sinful hearts desire darkness. See, God could have destroyed the majority 
of the nation in Israel right then and there. And he could have left this small little remnant right like he's done several times before. However, in verse 12, Joshua says, I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from the Lord. Unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. God was telling the nation he would not be with them any longer unless they destroy every bit of the sinful things from among them. In other words, they had to put to death the sin among the people of Israel. That was the call. Therefore, we see in verse 13, the Lord calls the Israelites to consecrate themselves. In other words, to to sanctify themselves, to to prepare their hearts, to to humble themselves before the Lord and be ready to watch the Lord work. He's done this many times in Israel's past. He's already done this in Joshua as well. The Lord would have Joshua announce to the nation that the worldly things dedicated to destruction were among the people. They would have known what that meant. Then he says, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Fail to repent or you will die. He says, see, God did not intend to build a people who had one foot in the world and one foot in his kingdom. That's not God's will. That wasn't God's will for the Israelites. That's certainly not God's will for us. He intended to build a holy nation of people who followed him, who delighted in him, and who reflected his glory. See, God had no interest and blessing a nation that wanted to be like the rest of the world. No interest. If they would not repent of their worldliness, they would die. So, God tells the Israelites through Joshua that the next day, they would all be gathered by tribes. Then the Lord would dwindle the tribe down to clans, and and, and he would dwindle the clans down to families, and families ultimately to, to men, to reveal Who actually kept the things that were devoted to destruction? And whoever was revealed would be put to death by fire. They would be be burned. Them and everything they had would be devoted to destruction, like the people, families, things, the city of Jericho. See, this is the process that was laid out in verses 15 through 18. Through this process, ultimately, it is revealed to Joshua and the nation of Israel that Achan was the one who kept things devoted to destruction in verse 19. And at this point, I want us to notice something very important here. See, at least several days have passed since the invasion of Jericho. Therefore, at least a few days have passed since Achan took the devoted goods and buried them under his tent. Not only that, but Achan was well aware of the Israelites' failure to capture the city of Ai. He was well aware. He was well aware of the men who died because of his sin. Not only that, but Joshua clearly presented the plan to the Israelites regarding how they would reveal who took the devoted goods the day before they cast the lots. He knew in advance what was going to happen. See, Joshua was extremely clear that the ones who the lots fell on would be burned. And at no point through this process, at no point does Achan confess his sin. At no point did he seek forgiveness from the Lord. At no point did he dig up the stolen goods and bring them to Joshua. Achan would roll the dice. Achan would play Russian roulette with himself and with his fellow brothers and sisters of Israel. So what if the the wrong lot falls on the wrong person and they're put to death? I'm going to take my chances. See, what we see in verses 19 through 21 isn't a contrite and repentant confession from Achan. It is simply Achan getting caught. You see, Achan held on to his sin until he was outed. He held on to his sin until Joshua looked him straight in the eyes 
and said, I know what you've done. Just confess it for us. <laughs> At that point, Achan had no option but to admit what he did. However, at this point, friends, it was too late. We've already seen God, even in Joshua, those who just come and begging for his mercy, he will give you mercy. He will give mercy. He gave mercy to Rahab, who happened to, last, par- last paragraph said, lived in Israel in fellowship until this very day. And at the end of this paragraph, in contrast, we see Achan, whose judgment was put before the people of Israel till when? Till this very day. It was too late. Achan would receive God's judgment. Not only that, this would strike fear into our hearts, fathers, but his family would ultimately be punished for his unrepentant sin as well. His whole family had become become unclean because of his sinfulness. His wife and his children were literally killed because of his sin. You see, we see in verses 24 through 25 that this whole family was stoned by the nation of Israel and set on fire. In fact, we see that they covered them with with so many stones that this pile of stones, this, this, this visual of God's judgment, it stood many, many generations later. You see, this is how God views sin, friends. He hates sin, and he will bring judgment for every sin. You see, what we must understand... Christians, there is absolutely no value in hiding our sin. None. It is only to our detriment that we would continue in hidden sin. You might be able to hide some of your sin before man, before your spouse, or your children or the church, your whole life. You might. You might be that good. However, we never hide our sin from the one that really matters, the Lord God. Not for one second do we hide our sin. He is never deceived, and know this, one day we will be outed. We will. We will be exposed. We will be outed as either being clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ or we will be outed as frauds, naked and ashamed before a holy God. Make no mistake about this, friends. The Bible tells us that every knee will bow before God. Your knee will bow. He will make every one of us bow. We will bow as his enemies, begging for mercy in the life to come. Or we will bow the knee in adoration as children and servants of Jesus Christ in this life and the life to come. Those are your only two options. If you wait until you are eternally exposed as a fraud, no, just like Achan, it is too late. At that point, you only stand to receive God's wrath. Please, hear me, friend. Do not be a fool like Achan. Turn from your sin today and trust in Christ today. Do not wait. Not only that, but refuse to believe the lie that the consequences of your sin only affect you. They don't. You might think that you're hiding your sin, but you're not. Like a secret water leak in a house slowly rots away the wood from the inside, hidden sin rots us from the inside. It rots our hearts. 
Sure, we can, we can try to fix that, that rotted wood with, with a little bit of, of new paint, but unless we fix the leak, the problem will only get worse. Hidden sin, it never remains hidden. It corrodes our hearts. It damages our marriages. It hurts our children. It hurts our friends. And Christian, hear me, it even hurts our church. Consider this. Just like the sin of one man polluted the nation of Israel, the sin of individual Christians in a local church pollutes the local church. You see, Paul tells us this in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, 6, Paul says, Do you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Paul is saying that one unrepentant sinner affects the whole body of Christ. One. It affects our witness as a church. It affects our purity. It affects God's purpose for the church to display the holiness and the glory of God. That's our, that, that is God's purpose for this gathering. It's to display his glory and his holiness. And one unrepentant brother leavens the whole lump. So what is Paul's solution for dealing with such people? Loving church discipline. Loving church discipline. He says in 1 Corinthians 5, 4, he says, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man, the man being the unrepentant sinner who confesses to be a Christian, to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Oh, just continue to be nice to him. Continue to act like everything's normal. No. The Lord gives us instructions. Paul continues, even in, in 1 Corinthians 5, 9. He says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. We're not, we don't treat unbelievers this way. We don't treat those in the world this way. We aren't coming down on, in judgment on the world. We pursue them. We love them. We, offer, we, put, we bring them into our homes. That's what the Bible calls us to do. Paul clarifies something. He says, I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater or viler, drunkard or swindler, not even to eat with such one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? That's not Paul's concern. No, Paul's not concerned. Uh, he's, he's not concerned about the news. Paul's not concerned about the politicians. Not really. He's most concerned about what's happening with inside the church. And yes, Paul would go out to the, and call them to repent and to trust in the Lord, obviously. But church discipline isn't for them. Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? But God judges those outside. Then listen to what he says. Purge the evil person from among you. Purge him. We are to remove such unrepentant sinners from the church. This is what God commands his people to do. And we do so patiently. And we do so humbly. And we do so carefully. And we do so tearfully. But this is what he calls us to do. And we must understand that the glory of God is at stake. We must also understand that the good of our supposed brother or sister is at stake. Hear me, eternity could be at stake for them. You see, we treat them like an unbeliever by excommunicating them from, from the church so that, as Paul says, his spirit might be saved in the day of the Lord. The, the, the hope is not to heap harm on them, to kill their reputation. 
The hope is that they might be saved in the day of the Lord. We don't wish them ill. We don't excommunicate out of spite or unforgiveness. The only godly motives for church discipline, hear me, are the glory of God and the good of our friend. Period. And those aren't two separate desires. Any other motives are from the pit of hell. Period. Point four, finally, as we close. The only hope for a sinful heart is turning to Christ. The only hope for a sinful heart like yours and like mine is to turn to Christ. You see, I know that these are heavy thoughts and I know that last sermon was heavy. I know this sermon's heavy and there's a lot more heavy sermons coming in Joshua. I know it's hard to consider the weight of sin and the wrath of God. However, I don't want us to miss some of these last few words in Joshua 7.26. As the Israelites sought the Lord and turned from their sinfulness, the Lord turned from his burning anger. Amen. He turned from his burning anger. Which got me thinking about this passage. You see, it, it can be tempting to think that we need to look at passages of scripture like this and, and, and that I need to be really, really careful to differentiate between believers and unbelievers in how I speak. And perhaps some, there is some merit to that. If you are a Christian, you will never receive the wrath of God. Amen? That's a good place for an Amen. See, Romans 8, it tells us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen. We are safe and secure in the arms of Christ, period. Full stop. And if you're an unbeliever, as of now, you stand ready to receive the wrath of God forever when you die, period. There is nothing commendable about you before God. You stand condemned. However, when it comes to the believer and the unbeliever alike, as it pertains to sin, what should we call them both to do? There is one solution. The call is to look to Jesus Christ and to turn from our sin, period. There is one application here to turn to Jesus and repent. You see, the call for believers is not to stand around and argue, what is the furthest extent I can wander into sin before I'm considered an unbeliever? And they sit and argue and argue and argue. That's foolish talk. That's a foolish question. If you are more concerned with trying to find genuine comfort in the midst of a season of unrepentant sin than you are with repenting and following Jesus, that speaks very poor volumes about the state of your heart. See, the Bible does not offer any hope for those who choose not to repent. None. In fact... See, Christians aren't interested in such arguments or questions. See, the Bible doesn't tell how far a Christian can walk in sin before they lose their salvation because the Bible tells us that Christians don't lose their salvation. The Bible also doesn't present Christians as people who are comfortable walking around in habitual and unrepentant sin. Instead, Christians take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. Christians want to be like Jesus. Christians sin, but they hate their sin. Christians sin, but they repent of their sin. Christians sin, but they confess their sin. Christians sin, but they put sin to death by the power of the Holy Spirit. Christians are generally more concerned with pursuing Christ-likeness than they are with excusing their sin. Anything less than this does 
not biblically constitute a Christian. Today, whether you are a follower of Jesus Christ or a non-believer altogether, friend, the call is to look to Jesus. See our risen Savior. Trust in his atoning work on the cross alone for your salvation. And like the Israelites, his wrath will be turned away from you. His burning anger will be turned away from you. His spirit will dwell within you and allow you to put daily sin to death as you live for his glory and wait for his return where he will judge the earth and bring his bride to him where we Christians will live and reign with him forever. Amen.